welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at FreightWaves for all things related to the CPG industry, supply chains, and CPG supply chains. I'm your host, Mike Bowden. I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves. Do some on the uh, customer success side and data side, and, and also some on the media side, uh, such as uh, this show and uh, People Speaking Rail. So this is our show about the CPG industry. Today, we're going to be talking to Jeff Leppard. He's the uh, SVP of Capacity Solutions at Redwood, Redwood Logistics. We're going to be getting Jeff's take on how shippers should be positioning themselves in this loose freight market so that capacity is available when the market eventually turns. Um, and it will turn at, at, at some point, maybe enough more capacity has to come out of the market for that to happen. But um, we'll hear from from Jeff on, on how uh, shippers should uh, position themselves, those in the, in the CPG industry and, and, and others. Um, and so we'll do that. Um, you know, before I do that, um, I do want to make sure everyone is um, signed up for the Stockout newsletter. Uh, very easy to do that. All you do is go to FreightWaves.com, up to newsletters, and then they can sign up for the Stockout. And at this point, it doesn't matter much whether you sign up for the Stockout or Point of Sale. Point of Sale is the retail uh, newsletter. We're going to be merging the two um, newsletters and also merging the two shows. So Grace Sharkey and I are going to be co-hosting a new and uh, hopefully improved uh, show on both CPG companies and retail companies. And a lot of the interaction between the CPG companies and the retail companies would say on that point right now, the CPG companies seem to want to keep those prices high. Retailers would maybe prefer that um, they moderate those price you know, increases. So the consumers have a little bit more um, money left over for the rest of the, of the store, but that'll be a frequent a topic. Uh, before I get into today's guest, I'm going to just go through just one news story and went through a lot of uh, CPG-related material over the weekend. And the one thing that really stood out was this article from Food Dive. And it was uh, talking about um, how there have been an uptick in food companies that have filed for bankruptcy protection. And particularly, a lot of these food companies that are VC-backed or in uh, what I would call the, the innovative uh, spaces. So those would be things like vertical farming, plant-based meat substitutions, um, and, and various other innovative sectors. And it does stand in contrast to what we're seeing for a lot of the large public uh, CPG companies, which those companies have been reporting strong earnings, uh, strong pricing, improved cost structures, streamlined um, you know, uh, supply chains, all those things seem to be firing on all cylinders. And some of the examples that Food Dive gives of companies that have filed for bankruptcy production, Tattooed Chef, which makes vegetarian uh, pizzas and burritos, other items, uh, Do Good Foods, which uh, makes ingredients, uh, makes food out of ingredients that would otherwise uh, go to waste. And then a lot of the on the vertical farming side, Aero Farms and App Harvest, uh, vertical farming has been struggling um, to demonstrate profitability. And then Bang Energy, they talked about that filing for bankruptcy. That's since been acquired by Monster Energy, so there there is um, you know maybe it haves and the have nots in the in, in the greater food uh, you know industry, um, and uh, it seems like a lot of um, you know these trends that could potentially be very disruptive in CPG industry when you talk about vertical farming, plant based, um, even cell based meat. It, maybe those things take a little bit longer to develop than uh, people are, are are expecting. Uh, so that's one news story. I want to reserve most of the time for today's guest. Today's guest is Jeff Lapper. He's SVP of Capacity Solutions at Redwood Logistics. Um, Jeff, thank you for joining me on the Stockout. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Happy to have you. Um, and uh, really want to just 
maybe just start for those not familiar with Redwood. Um, can you talk just a little bit about the company and, and sort of what you do for CPG companies? You have a number of good CPG logos uh, on your website. Sure. So Redwood Logistics is based out of Chicago, Illinois. Um, we're a North American freight management and digital third-party brokerage. Um, we have about $1.5 billion in freight under management. Um, and then obviously we have a digital uh, freight broker just been around for a while. I think we um, started business in 2011. Um, so we, we've grown organically and then through acquisition over the years and we're poised um, to kind of take the next freight cycle. Um, I've been with Redwood for since 2012 and um, I lead a team called Capacity Solutions. It's all of our modes that service North American from parcel to intermodal and to dedicated truckload as well as LTL. And so most of our customers are looking for a suite of services that are modally diverse. Um, we want to make sure that we build or craft a solution that's either tactical on a day-to-day basis or overall in a freight management environment where we're moving and executing the freight regardless of mode, but more importantly, that we're optimizing the freight before it leaves the door. So the day in the life of procuring a truck is important, um, procuring an LTL shipment, whatever. But we want to make sure that we're tactically addressing the space or the order itself um, and optimizing it to help continued value for our customers. Great. So a lot of that hits on um, stuff that's right in my alley. I follow intermodal here at FreightWaves. And I just, just want to ask you on sort of the, the modally diverse solutions, um, you know, how are CPG companies thinking about, let's say, converting truckloads into intermodal? You know, is the rail service, you know, uh, sufficient to, to to do that in in kind of the dense lanes, or or, or how are they thinking about that? Yeah, so intermodal, it, it's kind of gone through some cycles, right? And so, in there was back in the day uh, when we first started looking at intermodal, it was a kind of a surge or an overflow from truckload. So when truckload um, capacity or markets got tight, we ended up in a situation where we would have um, intermodal was kind of a hey, let's try that. Uh, but to your point, it was on dense lanes and lanes where they could find service. Over the years, the railroads really spent a lot of time scheduling their trains um, and building some service um, that was predictable. So we started seeing um, up to and including LTL line hauls with time sensitive freight on it moving through the network. And UPS is another example that is a large customer for the railroads. So they're moving parcel freight through the railroad network. So over the years, as the railroad got more and more efficient in their train scheduling, uh, intermodal became a core service offering for a lot of our customers, especially in the CPG freight. So um, it took some of the um, <clears throat> volatility out of the supply chain when you have intermodal in your network, as long as you can manage the time, right? So the time is a critical component um, of intermodal um, from the trains can move quickly, um, but as they get to their ramps, um, they can hit some congestion. And certainly if you're moving across the country and have to move through uh, some type of break or hub, um, we can see some time there added to the network. But overall, the intermodal um, has become what I would consider to be a stable or um, standard supply chain component. Yeah, that, that time sensitivity um, you know, issue is so critical when moving for intermodal. I mean, is, is the sort of rule of thumb sort of truckload plus a day or truckload plus two days, is, is that still... Is that still relevant and can that be relied upon in, in, with the current um, you know, rail service? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say truckload plus. Um, I would tell you that the railroad schedules are available, they're public knowledge, and I encourage shippers that are looking to leverage intermodal to look at those schedules. We still see a higher adoption rate in the longer length of hauls. So the Chicago to P&W, Chicago to LA, 
Um, the Chicago to Memphis or lanes like that, where the truck really is truly time competitive. Um, and the train is, is, doesn't, um, offer a huge economic value. Those shorter length of hauls, we don't, we don't see huge adoption on those lanes just yet. Um, but I think over time, as this truckload market shifts, that will come into play. Um, but again, uh, truck transit plus one isn't a, isn't a terrible thumb to win in uh, measurement. But again, I would tell you that the railroads have so many different ramp pairings and, and supply chains are so fluid. Um, that I encourage people to to look at train schedules and 90th percentile hours and identify historical patterns on those trains to see if they're consistent um, and then can incorporate it into their supply chain. So the, the, the information's available. Um, so thumb to win, which works great. Um, but uh, on analysis, the, the trains don't work like a bus or, a, you know, what we have in Chicago is the L where there's a train every eight minutes. Um, the, the same train departs on the same lane pair on a daily basis. The railroads run a network. Um, and so it's not hard to understand that there's a cut time in LA at 1700. Um, it'll be the same the next day um, and the day after that and the day after that. So it's important to understand that those are traditionally static um, and you can't optimize the supply chain against it. That makes a lot of sense. Really appreciate that. Um, the commentary. Um, I also want to ask you, I mean, you do so much with, with LTL, um, you know, what are your thoughts on yellow situation, how that's going to impact the rest of LTL market? Is there enough capacity to absorb it? What's that kind of your pricing, et cetera? Yeah, it, it's sad. I mean, again, I, I, no, I don't ever like seeing a historic company leave our business. Um, it, it's a, it's a tale of very, very, very many stories, um, and all kinds of, of contributions and opinions can lead into it. But um, a, a company of that big with all those employees and all those drivers, it's a sad story. Uh, we hate to see them leave. Uh, but I would tell you that because the economy was soft going into their demise, that the 10% or so of market share that they had was pretty easily consumed. Um, had it happened a couple of years earlier when the, when the networks were flush with freight and they were um, struggling to make pickups and deliveries, I think we would have had a different story. But the the storm of lack of income or lack of revenue by shipment for these LTL carriers declining, um, in particular for yellow, that storm colliding with what is a softer economic period you're going through, put them put the other LTL carriers in a position where the freight was easily absorbed. Um, now, that said, I would tell you that losing a carrier in that space with such a high barrier to entry of investment of capital and trucks and real estate. Um, it's going to increase, um, leverage for the carriers that exist in that space for pricing, um, negotiations, asset, soil negotiations, fuel scales, rules in general, um, blanket tariffs, like they'll all be impacted by yellow, um, yellow's departure from the marketplace. So we're, we're busy on procurement, but I would also carve that comment out with, we're also busy optimizing supply chains. And so it's important to Again, look at the shipment, not necessarily the carrier. So if you can take four or five LTL shipments and, and leverage a TMS to um, hold freight, trap freight, consolidate freight, whatever you want to call it, um, you want to make sure that you're doing that on the front side, affording your supply chain the ability to um, model that before departure to date or an OTIF date or a must arrive by date. Um, but if you can leverage technology and capture the available space in the truckload market, um, you create some of your own leverage. There's less LTL freight in your network. Um, and now, now you're, you're, um, minimizing overspend if, if it existed in your LTL network. But so there's kind of 
two points to make. One of them is the capacity wasn't a problem because of the economic factors we were facing, um, uh-huh. but the rate is becoming a problem. And so um, being smarter and fluid um, is really critical kind of thesis for all of our customers in the go yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you, you do so much with with optimizing supply chains. Are there, are there other areas like that um, that you would highlight as being sort of frequent areas of inefficiency in supply chains? And maybe like a related question to that, are there um, areas where there's not a lot of visibility in, in data that maybe creates some of those inefficiencies? Yeah, it, it's a great point. So master data um, or optimizing an order. Um, kind of like an inventory or a SKU component that's not packaged, um, is those front-end analytics to identify is the warehouse efficient, is the um, ordering process efficient, is it moving at the correct pace? That's important. Um, but then you get to your order itself and you want to make sure that you're optimizing the orders to turn into a shipment that is effectively moved through the network. So we definitely want to look at the as far upstream as we can, up to and including imports to timing um, related components, whether you're going to um, co-load or co-package 10 bottles um, into 20 bottles, right? So you want to know where your inventory is so that you can pull it forward, um, stage it properly, and then optimize the packaging and turn it into a shipment and move it to the network. And there's a phrase that the number one commodity shipped in the North American network is air. Um, so that's another component we want to address is, is the density of the pallet um, as well as the geographic region. So there's, there's the geographic region and optimizing the shipment um, from point A to point B. Most TMSs can capture that. Um, but we also want to pay attention to is the pallet cubed out properly, is the pallet and the packaging, mm-hmm. the effective pallet and packaging. Um, that way we're, we're shipping less space or air um, and we're moving those products in the most cubed fashion that we possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to pay to, to ship air. Um, also, I just want to ask you about the current um, you know, freight market. And um, you kind of, we have an interesting chart on the, the tender outbound tender volume index, which has caused some debate around here. So what, what the debate has sort of been was, you see the white line is 2023. These are, these are the volume of tenders, the volume of requests to move loads. And then July sort of very unusually um, rose throughout the month of July. And you know, I, as I had guests on the show, and I asked them why that is, they, they all said, well, they're hedging against potential UPS. They're hedging against you know, yellow, which probably will go out of business and it did. You know, now in August, it sort of stayed at this elevated level. And just, do you have any thoughts on, is this like a pull forward of demand? Is this real? Are you seeing this in the marketplace? Is there going to be any hope for a mini peak season this fall? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. And I think there's kind of two points to make. A lot of times when when we do this on all modes and all data sets um, on a frequent basis, and I would tell you that that it, when you do a year-over-year comparison and incorporate the what I would consider to be the shock effect of the pandemic, um, a lot of the lines that you're looking at right now are those comparisons, right? So I don't think anybody yeah. saw the pandemic necessarily coming. I don't think they necessarily expected such an aggressive return um, and growth. And you see that in that blue line. Um, and then it kind of stayed as demand was panicked um, and capacity was not there, right? And so all of a sudden you've seen kind of a, a what I would consider to be a stabilizing, I don't think it would be a, a contracting, it's not the right word, but a stabilizing component. Now we're evaluating what we, for those of us that have been in the game for a long time, we're evaluating what I would consider to be typical trends. Um, and this time of the year, we should be peaking a little bit. Um, it is back to school season. 
most people sent their kids back or will send their kids back in the next week or so. Um, and so we had a huge, not huge, but a, a, a typical buying pattern in the American consumer happened. Um, and I think it'll continue to happen. There's some economic forces that are in play that we're obviously watching as it relates to experience versus buying, right? So customers are, or, or consumers are going um, less on vacations and more buying more products. They have to ma- manage their budgets a little bit better. Um, yeah. And so we're seeing buying decisions that are buying products just because of the time of the year. Vacations are over. It's back to school. Um, Christmas season is obviously not here now, but it is on our radar. Um, so I think there's so much to talk about as it relates to that. But I would, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dangle the word out there that I, I think is, uh, I don't think it's dangerous, but it's just important that again, it's traditional. Um, this is a time of the year where it should start getting a little bit busier. Um, and overall, the American economy is, is people are buying stuff. So where that's good, it's been continued on. Now, I think that the, some of the demand um, is, is still there, um, but capacity, we're still recovering or reacting to capacity that came into the market during the pandemic. It was so lucrative to be in this market um, during the pandemic that that capacity is still there. Those drivers are still there. Um, so we have a little bit of a capacity glut um, that we're working through. Um, but I do expect that'll change over time. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and and as we work through that glut of capacity, if I'm a CPG company or shipper, um, and I'm looking at this. Uh, you know, how how would you advise those companies to position themselves now um, in a loose market? You know, knowing that at some point the market turns, you know, the other way. Sure. Um, there's three things that we look at or talk to our clients about um, in the CP in any space, but in particular in the CPG space. And most of the time um, in a C- CPG space, we have some static environments, right? So we have either co-loaders or we have bottlers or we have or co-packagers, I should say. Um, and so we have some static um, in lanes that we're addressing. Uh, so there's three things that I look at. And the first one is going to be when you look at your network, you have static environment, you have to buy or um, provide supplemental capacity. So if you don't have load leveling, um, which is spreading freight out over an element of time, if load leveling is not a, a something that's that's exists and you are an end of month, end of quarter, huge push shipper, um, it's important for you to have two things. One, strong relationships with your incumbent carriers, as well as partner brokers or 3PLs that can manage that surge. And they can be digital or they can be tactical. Um, but you always want to have that excess capacity available to you. Um, and obviously you have that waterfall tender moment where a core carrier in your network is going to have available capacity for you at the end of month, end of quarter. Um, but the time is coming where that, that guy's going to hold his freight and hold his capacity. Uh, and then you have to buy that supplement. So I, there's kind of, again, I would tell you it's, it's always fluid. Um, but I would focus on three things. One of them is going to be have relationships. There's still, everybody touts data and technology and connectivity, and it's all incredibly important. And we invest millions into it and companies should invest millions as well. It's, it's critical for continued success. However, you still need to have relationships. And so whether those relationships are with 3PLs or with Carriers Direct, um, those conversations, those human conversations are very important for us to maintain capacity in a fluid network. So we'll either do it on behalf of our clients. We have thousands of carrier relationships that are, are, are human in nature, uh, but we also endorse our, our customers to have those relationships directly um, because they're the ones that the negotiations are with for capacity, whether it's in an actual bid or in a, you know, just day by day 
moving of freight. They're also the individuals that can sense the sense of urgency in your freight. So a line down situation, um, an OTIF penalty that might be significant. Um, those stories, or those, that component of your supply chain, it's always important to pick up the phone and call somebody that you know um, because of that. I would also parlay that into this comment, which is carrier networks are always changing. So they may find or shift or, or consolidate, just like we saw with Yellow, um, something may happen in the carrier's network. I would tell you that everybody went through a hard set during the pandemic, um, and now they've kind of found their networks, but that doesn't mean that they're going to stay. So it's all about the rate per mile for a lot of these carriers. And so because they're all so fluid, um, it's important to chronically be looking at your partnerships and your capacity. So those are kind of the big two things I would tell you. Then the last thing is obviously procurement, right? So knowing the rate per mile so that you can forecast sales. Um, or cost of goods is also very important. So the more static that you have your environment, the more you're going to be able to predict your supply chain, which is becoming ever more important with a lot of our customers. And so we'll, we're starting to get calls now um, and we'll continue through the end of the year where clients will ask us for, hey, can you budget 2024? Um, and we are certainly helping them with that. And the best thing for us to help them with forecasting or budgeting is looking at static rate environments that are built within their network um, and modeling what, what we predict uh, um, will happen with rates over time. They'll go up. Um, a couple of things to pay attention to are obviously fuel um, and then obviously patterns of the overall economy. So those two things are the big things for us. Fuel is without a doubt um, a key beacon for us as it relates to cost for a trucking company um, and what would the rates will ha- would happen to rates subsequent. So there's a lot there, but um, again, I think fluidity is kind of my, um, fluidity and partnerships would be my two things to drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of good points there, um, to protect yourself against capacity shortage, you know, when that happens, uh, another, um, topic that comes up a lot in the world of CPG is this concept of supply chain resilience, where, uh, during the pandemic, CPG is not accustomed to not having enough ingredients, not having enough packaging costs, all those things happened. A lot of them said, we're going to build all this resilience. We have diversified our ports of entry. We have more distribution centers. We're going to do all this things. Um, but then you sort of rub up against the reality that that just adds cost and complexity to supply chains. And it, maybe it's better just to have it a little bit more simple. Um, you know, what are you seeing from customers or advising customers on, on that topic? Yeah, I think for us, the biggest thing was to look past what was the traditional buying pattern, right? So there are so many components that go into a supply chain that the inbound is as important as the outbound, right? So you, while your end user and customer or, or you know grocery retailer um, or big box retailer is your end customer and you focus so much on it, I think what we realized in the supply chain or a lot of our customers re- realized during the pandemic was that little box of bolts um, was so important and we didn't have an analogy would be the microprocessor to a car, right? So Ford kept kicking out trucks. They just forgot the chip. Um, and so I think you realize pretty quickly that the word supply chain traditionally for a lot of the people um, was outbound, like final customer truckload, LTL. Um, and they, they quickly, or they didn't necessarily protect the, the component part of it. Uh, because out of mind, it wasn't anything more than that, which just wasn't thought of. Um, and now we're in a situation where we need to think about all those components and incorporate them into the time that it takes to move anything that's from a, um, an inventory component to a shipment component. We want to make sure that we have um, a visual 
uh, and, and a plan to all components in the supply chain. It's really important, but I think the pandemic tested everybody um, in that world. And now we're in a situation where it's in sight and in mind, chronically looked at and modeling. Yeah, I think it's, um, they've elevated in importance that, that inbound uh, for, for sure. Um, quickly, do you guys do warehousing? What are you seeing in the, in the warehousing you know, market right now? Sure. So our warehousing is is a kind of a niche play for us. So we have a couple, um, what I would consider to be um, common space or public space where we can rent pallet locations or rows or square footage in in parcels. Um, but most of our, our warehousing is done in a strategic nature with, with a uh, partner that's looking to outsource the warehouse entirely. So um, our locations are in Chicago um, for local space or pallet space. But if a client had a need at the Mexican border, um, we have some experience in the El Paso and Laredo markets. We're also on the West Coast um, in the CPG space in particular. Um, so we do have some food grade experience. We also have um, some cross-border experience that we like to um, provide to our clients uh, to help expand their um, supply chain shifts. What we've seen is warehousing is you, is uh, a lot about location and center of gravity and where it fits in your supply chain and where should it be. And then from there, you move into the negotiation and tactical components of how much square footage you need. But our, our model is traditionally in a world of finding a critical need with, within our client, um, determining a location, and then working with them to, uh, to lease a building that will run on their behalf. But we don't have a, uh, a plan to expand into um, public square, public warehousing um, right now. Um, I think we have the need from our clients and it's helping us grow our expertise in that space because again, warehousing is traditionally, of, especially with forward inventory, a core competency of a lot of our customers. I think sometimes they just need help with labor and data um, and then obviously location determining um, the best investment. Very good. Uh, thanks so much for being on. All those, uh, those really good answers um, really gave me some, some insight. Um, how can folks out, reach out to you and reach out to Redwood? Sure. I, we just released a brand new website. So I encourage everybody uh, to head to redwoodlogistics.com. I think we talk about the fluidity or the ever-evolving components of supply chain and how we leverage data um, through Redwood Connect, as well as direct connections to carriers and customers to help them become smarter um, and adapt to the various supply chains that we have. If you want to reach out to me personally, you can find me at jleppert at redwoodlogistics.com. I'm happy to talk to anybody and, and encourage a phone call and look forward to it. Great. Well, thanks very much. Hope you're having a good day.